Good afternoon. I hope you enjoyed your lunch, and I hope that you will delay having a little sleep <laughs> until Brian Gunning speaking. And uh, I think when I was here last year, I told you, didn't I, some of you might remember, that I had developed an app uh, called the Sleeping in the Meeting app um, <laughs> that could detect people who were falling asleep. And I illustrated to you in real time and in real life how it worked. And uh, that seemed to keep most people awake for fear of being exposed. Um, but uh, I'm not going to tell you about that this year. I'm not even going to mention it. So um, we, <laughs> we'll not do that. But I'm sure you will do your best to stay awake, and I will do my best to uh, keep you awake. And just remember that from my vantage point here on the pulpit, I can see almost everything. <laughs> so if you're asleep, I will be aware. And if I fall asleep, you'll be aware too. <laughs> Romans chapter 1. We start reading at verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit <coughs> in the gospel of his Son, <coughs> that without ceasing <coughs> excuse me, I make mention of you always in my prayers. Making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you, for I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end you may be established, that is, <coughs> that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now, I would not have you ignorant brethren that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And I'm sure God will add a blessing to the public reading of his word here again today. Now we <clears throat> ended up, I think, uh, towards the end of verse 4, and I just want to make one little statement. I have been told that I said, and I blame it on jet lag if I did, that uh, sinners would appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, if I said that, I didn't mean that. Uh, that's jet lag. Of course, what I meant to say and I still think I might have said, what I meant to say was that sinners would appear before the great white throne. Uh, 
So it's a kind of political apology. You know, the politicians like to say, if I have offended anybody, I apologize. Well, of course they offended and they should apologize. But, so just to make that clear, um, but now I want to um, just pick up where we left off in that um, phrase at the end of verse four, um, by the resurrection from the dead. Thank you. Um, or by the resurrection of the dead. I was explaining to you that um, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is declared to be the Son of God because of the truth of resurrection and his ability to raise the dead, including, of course, raising himself. Later on, Paul takes up this idea of resurrection in a number of places in the epistle. <clears throat> and I just want to mention, as it were in passing, uh, what he says about it in chapter 4 and verse 5. We have that wonderful verse that you will remember. That the Lord Jesus Christ was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Now, I say this in connection with the idea of resurrection at the end of verse number 4. The New Testament makes it clear that primarily we are justified by faith. It also tells us in Romans that we are justified by blood. Now, when it says we are justified by blood, it is speaking about the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, not just his blood, but about his death. And um, so we are justified by that act, if you like, of him dying, which of course is associated with blood. But here in chapter four and verse 25, we are told that he was delivered for our offenses for our offenses. Now, the meaning of that is, I think, reasonably clear. The reason that he was delivered was because of our offenses. It was our offenses that caused him to be delivered. It was through, uh, that's the meaning of the word for, it was through our offenses that he was handed over for crucifixion. Now, on that basis, the second part of the verse should be interpreted in the same way. It says in our authorized version that he was raised again for our justification. Now I say this to you, we are justified by faith. We are not justified by his resurrection. His resurrection did not justify us. But following what we agreed upon, I think in connection with the first part of the verse, he was delivered because of our offenses. And he was raised again because of our justification, is, I believe, the correct interpretation of that verse. What that means is this. Because we were sinners and we had offended, it was necessary that Jesus Christ died and he gave himself for our offenses. But one of the great things about the gospel message is this, that when we believed, we were not only forgiven, but we were justified. Now, if I'm justified, there is nothing against me. It's this, I'm in a position, I'm in a position where it is just as if I have never sinned. You have heard that before. The reason that Christ Jesus must be delivered, must be um, raised from the dead, was because I became a believer. I was justified. 
And if I'm justified, there's no punishment. So it was my offenses that nailed him to the cross, and it was my justification that demanded he rise again from the dead. So we're not justified by his resurrection. There are many other things, blessings, that we come into because of his resurrection, but justification is not one of them. He was handed over because of my offenses, and he was raised again because I had been justified, and therefore there was no reason for him at all to remain dead. And so it is as we come to that. Let's move on now to um, verse number five of our passage, which says this. By whom we have received the gift and grace of apostleship. And the reason for that is for the obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. I'd just like to put it this way, that there are three statements here in connection with the gospel. The gospel including the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, demands three things. Number one, it demands obedience to the faith. That's the purpose of his death and resurrection. It demands obedience to the faith. Number two, not only the purpose, but the scope of the whole thing, is that it is among all nations. This was something that the Jews found hard to accept, but of course, in writing to them here, where there are Jews and Gentiles in the assembly, this is a great truth. It is among all nations. That is the scope of the message of the gospel. And the motivation to preach the gospel is for his name's sake. So, just looking at that verse again, by whom we have received, by whom I have received, the gift of apostleship, why did Paul receive it? For obedience to the faith. Secondly, among all nations. Thirdly, for his glory, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to know that when I preach the message of the gospel, even if there be no unsaved present to benefit from it, there is an immense benefit coming from the preaching of the gospel, and that is the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I imagine that sometimes we are tempted to, um, if we think, if we come to, in our judgment to the thought that there's nobody, nobody unsaved in the meeting, uh, then we might abandon the message of the gospel and do something else. But the preaching of the gospel, there is not a better or greater message that brings glory to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore Paul says now, I received the gift of apostleship, that I might preach the gospel. Why? So that people would obey and come to faith. The scope among all nations, no limitations, and it is primarily for his glory as well as for the salvation of precious souls. Uh, and verse number six, of course, he puts it very succinctly to them, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. So, first of all, among all nations, that's the scope, and the detail of that scope is among whom it's you. Again, he says, among whom, uh, to all the, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. So the word call comes up quite a few times here uh, in the first chapter and throughout the epistle to the Romans. For example, we are told that we are 
called to be saints, that we are called to serve, that we are called to suffer, that we are called to fellowship, that we are called to grace, and that we are called to holiness. Now, the call of God is an effective call. It not only calls me, for example, out of darkness into marvelous light, there's another one, it not only calls me, but it gives effect to the call. It ensures that on hearing the call, that I respond to the call. It seems to me here that everybody in Romans who was called responded. So the call of God is not only an invitation. The call of God is something that puts the invitation into effect. So I am called in that way. It is a wonderful and amazing call. And just in, pa just in passing and to help to keep you awake and alive, um, <clears throat> the, we are told, of course, later on that we <clears throat> are called to suffer for his name. But suffering and trials are very difficult to take, and we don't understand them. But uh, I like that um, expression that's used in the New Testament, that all things work together for good to those who are called. Now, it's difficult sometimes to think. In the midst of trials and difficulties and opposition and all the rest of it, it is sometimes difficult even to be able to imagine that it's for good. It's for a good result. It's for a good end. Let me illustrate it to you like this. It may be that I am, I'm not, but for the sake of this illustration, I am, that I'm very fond of chocolate cake. And uh, I like chocolate cake. It is a good idea. It is a good thing. Now, how is chocolate cake made? Now, I don't really know, but I'm going to guess a little bit. I would imagine that one of the ingredients of chocolate cake must be flour. Now, if I came along to you with a large tablespoon full of flour and said, I think you like chocolate cake, don't you? I think you should eat this flour as it is, just like that. I don't think you would do it. I mean, it would clog up in your mouth. You wouldn't even be able to swallow it with water. It'd be dreadful. You don't like it. It's not good. I imagine that another ingredient might be sugar. Sounds a little bit more palatable, but it's a poison. So if I come to you with a tablespoonful of sugar and say to you, please eat this tablespoonful of sugar, you would turn your nose up at that as well because, I mean, that's just too much. A teaspoonful maybe, but a, a, a tablespoonful of sugar. No, thank you very much. It might be also that uh, in that um, concoction, uh, there might be some chocolate and so I come to you with a bar of chocolate that plainly says on it, baking chocolate. And it's black and dark. And I say, please eat this bar of chocolate while I stand and watch you. Well, you'll not do that either because it's not nice. It's bitter. It's not for eating. It's really for baking. And there'll be other ingredients in, um, uh, in, in a chocolate cake, I imagine, but whatever they are, if I present it to you on its own, you're probably going to say, well, no, thank you very much. But if I give all those ingredients to a cook or a chef, that cook or chef will take each of those ingredients that on their own are not nice, and he or she will mix them together, 
and having mixed them together in the correct quantities, then places the resulting uh, concoction into the oven and bakes the cake. And when the cake comes out, it's rather different to the various not nice things that went in. And once, of course, it's decorated with extra chocolate and all the rest of it, it becomes very palatable indeed. Let me say this to you. It may be that in your life and in mine, we are going through times of trouble and trial and difficulty, and that is not nice. We don't like that. It's hard to bear. It's hard to take. But all the events of my life are being, our verse says, work together. Not only that they do work together, but that they are being worked together is the idea by the master chef in heaven who is putting in the right ingredients into my life, the right quantities at the right time so that the end result will be something that is beautiful and palatable and something that I will really like and enjoy. And so we are called. And amongst our calls is a call to suffering. And if we suffer with him, of course, we shall also reign with him. But all the things that seem to be us to be bad and inappropriate and not nice that are occurring in our lives, once they are mixed together by the heavenly chef, then that will produce in your life and mine something that is beautiful and palatable for him and for us. So this is one of the advantages of being effectively called. Not only called, but effectively called is the idea. And so he introduces this, um, these first six verses, if you like, um, to get to this point, among whom are ye also called, effectively, the called of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 7. He addresses this letter now to all that be in Rome. Now, he, I mentioned the other eve, last evening, I think, that there may well have been some tensions in Rome in the assemblies that were there between Jews and Gentiles. Now, he is very careful here to address himself to all that be in Rome. Of course, he himself was a Jew, but nevertheless, he was a Roman as well. And so he is anxious not to give offense, nor to give succor to one side in any dispute. And so he addresses himself to all that be in Rome. And then he mentions a few things about them. Beloved of God, called to be saints. What, what's the meaning of these things here? To all that be in Rome. Now, being in Rome was their position geographically. They were where God had placed them. And now in assembly fellowship, if we can put it that way, and one of what I suggested to you were five assemblies in Rome at this time. Being in that situation, they are in Rome, in a particular locality placed there by the Lord himself. So I could ask you, why are you in Claremont? Why do you think you're here? I would imagine that you are here because this is the place that the Lord has placed you. Or if you're in some other assembly fellowship, that is the place where the Lord has put you and where he wants you to be. It is therefore a very high-handed action to move on without his say-so and without divine direction. You see, the Apostle Paul 
wanted to come to Rome. He was desperate to come to Rome. It was his ambition to come to Rome. It was his will to come to Rome. But until he was sure it was God's will, he didn't come. He didn't come. Therefore, you and I must be careful to be aware of the fact that God has placed us geographically in the place where it is his understanding that it is the best place for us to develop into the kind of Christian that he has always planned for us to be. And so let us be aware of that. These people were not only in Rome, but they were in another good place. They were in a position where they were loved of God. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God. What a wonderful statement that is, is it not? That you and I not only have the blessing of being in assembly fellowship, but we have the blessing of being loved by God. And his love is a true love, a faithful love, an everlasting love. And here we are enjoying that love today. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, and of course he adds, called, and you see the words to be again in italics, it's all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, because that's what they were. And uh, of course they are saints, they are individually sanctified, and we've heard something about that already in uh, our brother Brian's messages uh, of the good work that's being wrought in us on an ongoing basis. But there's, wonderful, there's one thing just to notice that's interesting about the use of the word saints. You and I are often, and I think uh, rightly so, very reluctant to call ourselves a saint because you know you're not, <laughs> you know you're not, really. The New Testament speaks of saints in the plural. So when an assembly of believers is gathered together, they are called saints. In no place in the New Testament is the word saint used for an individual, except in one place, in Philippians 4 and 21, where the word saint is used, but it is obviously referring to the company of saints. So it's just interesting to note that in passing. Saints always refers to a group of believers. The word saint is not used for an individual, and therefore you and I should not call ourselves individually a saint, but we should be aware that the gathering of the Lord's people is a gathering of saints. He then goes on to say in the, his greeting, grace unto you and peace. This, of course, is the standard greeting, particularly, appropriated, um, uh, particularly appropriate here for this assembly where there are both Jews and Greeks, uh, Jews and Gentiles. Uh, grace and peace is the traditional greeting and it comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these people are wonderfully blessed, and Paul explains that to them in this beautifully compact little introduction in verse number 7. Then he says in verse number 8, first, uh, that is not necessarily first in time, but first in order of priority. First, says he. Well, what is it? First, he says, first of all, 
I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that, he says, um, your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So when he thought of Rome and his desire and ambition to go there, one of the first things that came into his mind in order of priority was the faith of the Christians in Rome was a talking point throughout the known world at that time. Very probably the Roman Empire is what he had in mind. So this church that had not been founded by anybody of any significance, just a bit like the church in Antioch that was founded by unnamed persons, this church was famous, it was well known, because people in other places talked about the faith of the believers in Rome. And so Paul acknowledges that. He said, when I think about you, I thank my God through Jesus Christ, which one might suggest is the proper way to thank God, to thank God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, although that is not to say that one should not thank the Lord Jesus Christ. But this seems to be a standard and classic way that Paul would have done it. He thanked God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, he says something here which is interesting. He says, for God is my witness. God is my witness. Why does he say that? God is my witness. And he then speaks, of course, whom I serve with my spirit and so on. He says, God is my witness. Now, I could come along here and say to you that I pray for the believers in Claremont every day. Well, let me be clear, I don't. Um, but I could say that, couldn't I? And you would say, well, what witness do you have to that? How can we believe that? And I wouldn't really be able to present you with anything because my private prayer life is known only to me and to God. Therefore, when I'm speaking about something spiritual and something that cannot be seen by the naked eye of the human being, Paul can actually, in those circumstances, call God to witness. Now, he says, God is my witness. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit. This is a spiritual matter in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you in my prayers. So he calls God to witness. That shows you that he was absolutely confident, and they could be confident too, that what he was telling them was the truth because he was able to call God to witness. And if what he was saying was wrong, then, of course, he would not be able to take the risk of calling God to witness about that. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit. Now, Serving here is not so much going out and preaching the gospel, but the word serve here is used to indicate an act of worship. It's that meaning of the word serve, an act of worship. So his prayers, in fact, were acts of worship. He was serving, in a sense, as a priest, in a priestly function. And that priestly function involved him in praying without ceasing. Now, again, without ceasing doesn't mean to say that he never stopped, but it's the idea of regularly, as often as I can. We would say, all the time, you're in my mind, and I'm praying for you in that way. 
So it's a spiritual exercise whom I serve worshipfully in my spirit, praying, making mention of you always in my prayers. Paul prayed as an individual, and he also prayed with other brethren, because in 1 Thessalonians he speaks about sharing prayers with um, uh, the, the, the other two who were with him on that occasion, Silas and Timotheus. So he prays as an individual, he prays with other people. And here he says, I pray for you all. So how could he do that? He'd never been there, he didn't know them. He knew at least 24 of them, uh, according to chapter 16, and obviously he prays for them. And through those 24, I imagine, that he might well have known the names of dozens of others. I wonder how many saints there were in Rome when he wrote this. Well, if you took the basis of there being five churches in Rome at this time, uh, you might imagine that there could well be a couple of hundred, maybe, of believers there. So what does he do? How does he pray for them? Not just as a group, although I'm sure he does that, but also making mention of you, he says, in my prayers. I think it is a lovely thing to make mention of people by name. I'm sure he prayed for the church or the churches in Rome, but he also makes mention of them in prayers. <clears throat> Sometimes when we have access to a letter from a missionary or someone else abroad serving the Lord, and the brother who stands up to read this letter that has come to the assembly, uh, or maybe even the writer of it, says and hopes that it will be helpful for us to pray more intelligently. Well, <clears throat> to pray intelligently, you need information. But if you haven't got any information, it doesn't mean to say you shouldn't pray. And I would just say to you that when I leave this place, our brother Gunning leaves this place as well, you don't really have much of an idea where I'm going next. You don't need to know. All that you need to remember, if you can, is my name and mention it in passing in your prayers. That alerts heaven to me and to my need, and although they don't need to be reminded, it is good nevertheless for you to mention names of people in prayer that you have a concern for and are anxious about and you would like to be helped by God. Making mention of you, he says, in my prayers. So let me encourage you. In your prayers, you don't need a whole load of information. They've got all that stuff in heaven anyway. Make mention in prayer of the name. And I'm sure God would bless you and bless the um, person who is, the, uh, is concerned in your prayers as well uh, in that way. Now, he's also making, not only making mention, but you will see making mention is verse number nine. Making request is verse number 10. So what is he requesting? Now, look at how he guards this around. This is a very guarded statement. Um, <clears throat> making mention of you in my prayers. Furthermore, making request, if by any means now at length I might come and um, uh, bring to you, share with you, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. So in Paul's prayers, he's making mention of their names, and he's also making request 
for something to happen. And the thing that he wants to happen is that he might be able to come to see them. That was his ambition at that time. So how does he put it? He's really desperate to get there. For, he says, I make request if by any means. Now, that is a very broad statement, isn't it? If by any means. Well, what, what, let's accept that, by any means, how this might happen. Now, at length, if you like, after all these years, what might happen? That I might have a prosperous journey, a successful journey, to, by the will of God, to come unto you. Now, I said earlier, and of course it is true, that it was his will to come, but he wasn't going to come until it was clear that it was God's will that he should come, that I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Now, Paul's prayer was answered, but absolutely not in the way that he had anticipated. Because as I mentioned in the opening remarks of um, uh, this little series on Romans, he arrived in Rome a prisoner of the Roman Empire. He had never anticipated that in getting to Rome. And yet he got there because of that prayer, if you like, by any means. And let, it be, let, it be, let, it, let us be aware that God is able to use any and all means to achieve the end result. And I think perhaps what God did in the end was the best way for Paul to get to Rome. Because at least the saints knew that he wasn't coming, if you like, of his own volition. He was being brought there. And um, he was nevertheless, at the end of the day, I'm sure, quite pleased to be with them. Making request, continuous beseeching of the throne of grace, if by any means all difficulties that had hindered to be taken away, now at length, that is after the elapse of some time, I might have a prosperous journey. Now, I suppose he meant by a prosperous journey, the removal of the difficulties, physical health, spiritual health, a good wind behind his back, if you like, to take him there by the will of God. That was the big thing, by the will of God to come to you. And of course, we know that he was able to do that. And then you have this lovely expression in verse number 11, for I long to see you. I long to see you. I long to see you. And what does, why does he long to see them? that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift or some spiritual blessings. Now, the critics there, of course, might say, oh, well, I mean, who does he think he is? He's going to come here to bless us. And as we say, we have done for years without him, so why do we need him now? That I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that you might be established. Of course, it's interesting to see how he continues immediately, almost a little marching backwards in verse number 13, uh, sorry, in verse number 12, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. So if he's giving the impression that he wants to come because he knows he can be a blessing to them, he is quick then to say he wants to come because they can also be a blessing to him. And so it is that when one comes along to a conference like this. One certainly, as a speaker, comes with the hope and the anticipation that one's message 
can be a blessing to the believers who have assembled. On the other hand, one is equally aware that the believers who have assembled can be a blessing to the speaker every bit as much and sometimes more than he can be to them. And so it is a mutual thing, a mutual faith, the mutual faith, he says, both of you and me. So he said, I long to see you. It's been like that for a while. I want to come because I believe that when I do come, I'll be able to share spiritual blessings with you that will help you and build you up to the end that you may be established. Now, the word established is interesting. It means uh, that you might be propped up. You know, if somebody's about to fall down, it's a good idea to prop them up so that they remain standing. And he said, when I come to Rome, the objective of my ministry will be that you might be propped up, that my ministry might be a staff for you. Remember a combination of a couple of verses from the Old Testament, who is this that cometh up out of the wilderness? And then another scripture, leaning upon his staff. So the ministry of the word of God should be a support to the people of God and should be something for you to lean on in the days and weeks and months that lie ahead. It should be a staff in your hand because you remember it and you can lean upon all the promises of Christ that we have been speaking about in these meetings so far. I long to see you. Verse 12, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. And then just to bring this particular session to a close, I want to refer to verse number 13. Now he said, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, that's a favorite phrase of the apostles, that I would not have you to be ignorant. He uses it a number of times. Uh, here in 1.13, he doesn't want them to be ignorant as to why he has not come before. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 11 and verse 5, he doesn't want them to be ignorant as to why the Jews are currently blinded to the message of the gospel. He doesn't want, in 1 Corinthians 10, um, he also uses that phrase, again, 1 Corinthians 12 and 2 Corinthians 1. He uses the phrase, I do not want you to be ignorant, a, a, a favorite phrase of Paul's, I think, and uh, he uses it there in that way. Here, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was hindered up until now. Again, he says, that I might have some fruit among you also even as among other Gentiles, indicating, I think, that maybe the majority of the folks in the assemblies in Rome were Gentiles. He doesn't just say even as among Gentiles, he says even as among other Gentiles. And um, the idea is there as the rest of the Gentiles. Then, verse 14, he's back to the gospel again. He cannot get away from the gospel. He cannot leave it. He says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Let's just look at that very briefly um, before I sit down. I am a debtor to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the unwise. Said Paul, I feel an obligation to preach the gospel. I really do. If I owed some people money, I would feel an obligation to repay it. 
Paul said, in the same way, I know the message of the gospel. These people out here are desperate to have the message of the gospel, and because I know it, I ought to them to preach the message of the gospel to them. And let me just finish this little bit of the conference session today by saying this, that you, by the grace of God, know the message of the gospel. You know it. There are people with whom you work. There are people near whom you live. There are people, if you like, that you know in the neighborhood. And you owe them a debt. Now, if you owe somebody a debt of money, you're not going to be comfortable until you pay it. And they're not going to be comfortable until you pay it either. Therefore, you owe them a debt of the gospel. And you will never be comfortable until you've paid that. And told them of their need of a savior. And told them of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And told them how they can get to heaven. You owe it to them. Will you die? Will I die? Without fulfilling our debts? That is morally and spiritually wrong. We have a debt to tell the people about Christ and about the message of the gospel. So, he says, as much as in me is, my efforts to preach the gospel, to tell the message, to reach the lost, will only be limited by my, spirit, by, by my physical strength as much as in me is. That's, I, I can only do my best. And so therefore you and I should do our best to preach the gospel in our lives and by our words to those people around to whom we owe it. So I trust the Lord will bless his word. Thank you for listening. Thank you for keeping awake. Didn't see anybody asleep, which is a good thing. And um, trust that the Lord might bless his word and particularly encourage you and me to enjoy our blessings and to fulfill our obligations to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the folks around. Thank you.